Hey listeners, Tim Winkler here, your host of The Pair Program. We've got exciting news, introducing our latest partner series, Beyond the Program. In these special episodes, we're passing the mic to some of our savvy former guests who are returning as guest hosts. Get ready for unfiltered conversations, exclusive insights, and unexpected twists as our alumni pair up with their chosen guest. Each guest host is a trailblazing expert in a unique technical field. Think data, product management, and engineering, all with a keen focus on startups and career growth. Look out for these bonus episodes dropping every other week, bridging the gaps between our traditional pair program episodes. So buckle up and get ready to venture beyond the program. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Becca, and this is How I Got Hired. How I Got Hired is a series of interviews where product managers share how they landed great product roles, from PMs who made a career pivot into tech to those with more formal training. How I Got Hired captures the various ways to open doors into the world of product. We'll be talking about each guest's recipe for success, what motivated them to get into product, how they prepared for the interview, and what they did to set themselves apart. Today, my guest is Amy Callahan. Amy is a product veteran with over 10 years of experience. Amy started in product at Snagajob, which we'll talk about today, then worked it for Launch Media, CarMax, and was most recently VP of product at Banks, a talent marketplace for the regulated cannabis industry. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Becca. I'm really excited to get to talk with you today. I'm excited too. Um, so for listeners, um, Amy and I have not had the opportunity to work together yet, hopefully, maybe one day in the future. Um, but we were introduced by my boss a few years ago, and I've always really admired uh, the work that you've done, Amy, and um, thought that others would enjoy hearing about your unique product journey and, and learning from you. So excited you. to yeah. get into it. Um, Okay, so I thought of a fun way to get started, just to give a little bit of uh, color to to who you are uh, and continue to share fun or embarrassing facts about myself, um, <laughs> would be to do a little bit of two truths and a lie. So um, I can I can kick us off uh, with Go my my list this time. I'm okay. exceptionally bad at telling when people are lying. So this is always great for the person playing with me. I, um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm a good liar, but I really, <laughs> I probably put way too much thought into <laughs> what these You're should be. You're a great be. strategist. <laughs> yes, I, exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I, there's a theme to these. Um, okay. So number one, I have won multiple first place ribbons for showing dairy goats. Number two, I have ridden a horse around the grounds of Versailles. And number three, I grew up on a 200 acre farm. Hmm. I'm going to say uh, you have not ridden a horse around the grounds of Versailles. You would be wrong. So cool. <laughs> um, that was an incredible experience. Uh, totally random. Just like found this thing online. And um, the was... reason I picked that one because I was like, that's a historic property. There's no way they're letting tourists clip clop around. But I, I found somebody on TripAdvisor that um, does these tours. And um, it was an incredible experience. But uh, the, the lie is maybe the most you would think as someone who rides horses and shown dairy goats that I would have grown up on a farm. And in fact, I grew up all over the place, but mostly in like suburban New Jersey. So. <laughs> oh my goodness. I have a, a great fondness for goats. I have never shown them, uh, won any ribbons on their account. Uh, <laughs> but one of the developers in my last company had a farm that he was working from and he had a live goat cam going in our Slack channel. So anytime I you just that. needed like a pick me up, you could hit the goat cam. It's amazing. They're so sweet and so yes. fun and what's not to love. So. Amazing. All right. Uh, Let's all right. see how my I, I think mine. There is significantly less detail, though. Um, 
So all of these are things I'm claiming that I have done one time. Skydiving, mountain climbing, motorcycling. Ooh. I'm going to say motorcycling. Mm, that is the lie. Cause I used to motorcycle way more than once. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I, know if that was what I was thinking, but um, <laughs> count it anyway. <laughs> yeah. The original I was going to do is I have an intense fear of heights. I have climbed a mountain and I've been skydiving. And I'm like, no, those are all true. I can't do that. I have to mm. add a lie in. It's like, what's, what's a cool way to lie and make myself sound cooler? But yeah, no, actually, I went through a motorcycling phase uh, before I had kids. And now nice. the gear is actually directly above my head in the attic because I spent months finding women's riding gear that was neither pink nor glittery nor emblazoned yes. with, you know, hearts or butterflies. So that's the so one thing. You, I sold the do bike. Do you still have a bike? Okay. I don't. No. For right what now, kind of I'm like, all right. The plan, because I too am strategizing, uh, strategizing, is that uh, when my kids get to the age where they think everything I do is lame, I'll bring a bike back in and then either they'll think motorcycles are lame, which is a great win for me as their parents, or they'll think (laughs) I'm cool. Like one of those two things has to become true and either one of them is great for me. Yes. Um, My mom actually used to ride motorcycles, um, broke both of her legs, thankfully not at the same time. Um, although I don't know how much does that matter, but, um, yeah. Yeah. It it was a, you know what? It was a risk assessment. It was a basic risk assessment. I was like, all right, uh, you know, if I'm out of commission, these kids are going to be in in a pickle. So I can at least wait, you know, 20, 25 years to get back on. I, I think my mother made the same kind of calculation. So, uh, thank you on behalf of your children. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Um, so let's get into it. I think um, a great place to start is at the beginning. So, um, and I think the story we want to talk about today really is how you got into your first product role, which I think is super cool. And it, there's so many different ways um, to get into product. And I love hearing people's different stories. So um, maybe we can just kind of start there and start with, um, you know, what did, what did your early, very early career look like? What were you doing right before you ended up transitioning into a product role? Yeah. Um, that's a great question, especially, I think it's been fascinating to watch how the types of beginnings people have in a product career have shifted over the years. Right. Cause when I got into product, there was no product level training at college or university, those things didn't exist, right? Like the only way in was really to kind of get adopted by an organization that was doing it. Um, I, uh, speaking of college and university, I went to school for uh, a very practical bachelor of fine arts in animation because I was convinced I was going to go be a video game animator. Um, but it's I had interesting a- because I was looking at your LinkedIn and I literally had to Google, what is it called? Kinetic? Oh, kinetic imaging. Uh, yeah. Well, that's because I, I went like, to an art school imaging? and they wanted the fanciest way possible to say animation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I rarely actually put my major on. I'm like, I just have a BFA. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> no further questions. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah. So I had an internship though, while I was in school and that was in web design. Um, so when I graduated, I actually stayed in a small web design firm for a little while. There wasn't a lot of mobility though. It was a great opportunity to kind of learn everything, touch everything, do some basic front end coding, get some account management under my arms. Um, eventually I wanted to move on to a bigger place. So after six years there, um, I transitioned to snag a job, which was my first real, like, corporate experience. Um, they were a good mid-sized startup at that point. Um, I think I was higher number 256. So, you know, good mid-sized company, um, mm-hmm. lots of good practice in place. And they were one of the first organizations in Richmond, especially to be doing product management. Um, I joined as um, somebody who was working in their marketing department. And as I got kind of my hands into the business, and like understood from my little vantage point where the problems were, I eventually worked my way into being um, social media manager there. And social media management is great because it is basically one long user interview all day long. 
uh, often with the extremes of your user base, right? You're getting the people who are really happy and you're getting the people who are really mad and they're all talking about it real time on Twitter or Facebook or, you know, today, Instagram, but it was, it was wild, but it was great. Yeah. It was the perfect kind of immersion and just hearing the problems and the successes over and over and over again. Um, and so I, I would not have had the language to phrase it this way, but what happened was I just started hearing the problems that I was kind of fixing one off one at a time, doing my best to solve the problem for each individual user. And I sort of followed those problems upstream into the product experience where they were happening and tried to figure out, well, what change could we make that would solve this problem and prevent it from ever hitting social media? Right. Mm -hmm. And I would put together absolutely gorgeous mock-ups in a program called MS Paint that hopefully no one <laughs> actually knows about anymore and um, send them along with my idea and proposal by email over to our team of product managers who I had met on my first like building tour. And I was like, oh my God, the cool people are over there. Um, and I would just email them all my ideas. Um, and eventually I sent exactly enough emails and I don't know what the number is. Otherwise I would share that. I wouldn't gatekeep that kind of knowledge, um, <laughs> that they were like, Hey, we should just train her to be an associate PM. Um, and so like, there wasn't even really a rec open. Um, it was really just kind of putting myself in a place where I was consistently demonstrating the, um, the affinity and the skills of an associate PM and making that knowledge open to the product team, right? Like I know a lot of incredible people who I think could make great product managers who are kind of doing that in their own space, but it never reaches the product team. And so you, yep. we don't know to reach out like the claw and drag them into product and make them one of us like weird tech zombies. Um, but I think that was the thing that helped was that I was doing that work, but then I was sharing it with them. And so they had visibility into what I was doing and, and thought that it was a good opportunity for me. Um, so there was some conversations between the head of product and the head of marketing, and they kind of did a little work around like how we were going to make that transition. Um, but ultimately that was a really, really seamless one for me. That's super interesting. And I, I love the way that you describe that as kind of like going upstream. I think that's really at the heart of like, kind of what makes someone a product person, right? That you're like, okay, I'm, I'm not satisfied just kind of treating the symptom of this problem. Like I want to go to the heart of it and, and stop it at the source, uh, prevent it. And I think that kind of just taking that initiative and being proactive and, and yeah, like I was, uh, saying with another guest about how product doesn't have a swim lane, right. You just kind of have the whole pool. And I think that's kind of it, right? Is like, you didn't look at that role and say, oh, well, I'm just a social media manager. I just, you know, hear these things and try to, you know, make people happy. Like you said, hey, I, I don't have a swim lane. I'm going to go that step further and um, figure out like, how do we prevent more people from running into these same issues in the future? Yeah. So I do think awesome. I was, I was cautious of not stepping on too many toes though, which I'm grateful to my time in marketing because I think it actually did a good job of teaching me like how to talk about a success in such a way that you look great, but more it's about talking about the team, right? You're not talking about mm -hmm. how great you are. You're talking about how great the work was. Like it was a very good, like small public relations boot camp of like, and I've yeah. used that for every product team and every product org I've been a part of since then. Cause I've definitely had people that were like so hungry for the role that they were like constantly just like counting a product team. Like, Hey, look what I did. Look what I want. Like, here's what I yeah. am. And I think there's a fine line. Right. And I probably stepped over or towed the line a couple of times <laughs> in, in ignorance, but, but yeah, it was ultimately just coming from a place if I wanted to fix stuff. Like when people mm -hmm. ask why I got into product, I was like, cause it's just solving problems at scale. And that's so delightful to do. Yep. Yep. And what was that role like this? So you were hired into, was it an associate product manager role initially? Yep. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about like what that role actually involved and, and how you actually kind of started to dip your toes into actual product responsibilities. For sure. Yeah. And Snagajob actually did a really nice job. It's one of several orgs I've been fortunate to be in where they 
created a really intentional pathway into product, um, both for external and for internal talent. Um, and so what happened when I moved into product in that associate role was, you know, got invited to all the product meetings. It wasn't a huge product team. I think it was about like eight to 10 people at the time. Um, we, they pretty quickly, uh, put us all on a plane and sent us out to Marty Kagan's weekend workshop, which I was like, this is the best thing ever. Um, (laughs) I don't know that there's any better way to start your product career than like sitting in a room, listening to Marty Kagan talk about eBay. Um, and, uh, so really they, they, they carefully positioned me so that I could form relationships with other product managers and like build mentors within the group. Mm -hmm. They also put me in a space where the harm I could do was very limited and the ability to learn was extremely high. And granted, I still managed to do some dumb stuff, but um, I think that's really important, right? The first job that they positioned me for was helping our customer and member support agents um, understand like where they could gain efficiencies and taking the bugs and issues that they were hearing. It was a a larger role of what I was already doing as a social media person, right? I was like just opening the floodgates from social media to, and everyone who talks to an angry customer or user all day mm-hmm. long, right? And synthesizing that information across, escalating the important stuff that I couldn't handle up to the rest of the product group, managing what I could on site and finding ways to close gaps. So one of the very first things I did was identify that um, all of our support agents kind of had to roll their own support scripts every time a question came in. So we put in place a single unified like core set of support scripts and made them accessible to everybody so that everyone wasn't trying to constantly, you know, reinvent the wheel, which was great because from a branding perspective, it gave Snag a job a lot more control from a customer service uh, perspective. It gave people more time and energy back to actually answer calls rather than kind of doing copywriting on the fly. And at the end of the day, it it results in a more reliable customer experience because now you don't have like 15 to 20 different people making 15 to 20 different ways to respond to a single incident. Um, So I think it was great because oftentimes I see organizations start associate PMs in places Mm -hmm. that they can really get themselves in trouble. (laughs) You know, the business has a ton of urgency there. You know, there was an opening because they needed somebody. I think customer support is an amazing place to start somebody out. There's several of those like little safe havens around an org where you can almost always use the help and the amount of damage somebody can do is kind of a little bit insulated from the rest of the org. Like they're not going to bring down the OKRs for this quarter from from the member (laughs) support side. Yeah, that actually um, kind of gets a little bit to a question that came to mind. Like, did you ever find in that role that you like, was that frustrating at all? Did you find that you were like in conflict potentially from maybe more or with like the bigger top-down organizational priorities? Because it's, I'm thinking about like my experience um, working and like trying to prioritize those types of ideas, things that come from your customers that, you know, there can be a lot of noise, right? Like you don't want to jump at every single issue that a customer brings up. But at the same time, like if you can cut through that noise and you can see things kind of thematically, you can actually identify some changes that can be equally as consequential, I think, as some of these more top-down driven initiatives. So I'm just curious, like, is that something you ran into? And like, how did, if so, how did you handle it? Yeah, I I think everyone in product probably runs into that all the time. Um, or I'm just a very, uh, contrary person who's constantly (laughs) just asking people to prove to me why the things we've prioritized are the way they are. But, um, I think you actually described it really perfectly, which is the, the layer that was missing because obviously there was a ticketing place, like in place, there was a, you know, uh, SLAs in place, response times, all of that jazz, all those things already existed. What I really was able to do in that role was to synthesize the things that were these individual floating bugs and say, here's why all those things are happening, right? Like, and make it easier for a product team upstream to take the work and say like, oh, we see what the benefit of solving this would be. And they've already done the investigative work. So it's much easier for us to pick up and do our QA isn't going to spend like, two days this week, you know, looking into this and trying to figure out how all these bugs are connected. Um, and the other thing is, I think that this was part of where 
I started to leverage discovery to help make sure that the things that I truly felt were important were given consideration, even if they weren't ultimately prioritized. Um, Because I never want something to get prioritized that shouldn't be, right? Like no matter how passionate I am about it, if they're literally working on something more important, then I should be waiting my turn. So I love to make sure I put it forward and I make sure there's shared understanding between me and that other team about here's the actual customer impact, right? Like, let me let you listen to the customer call from one of the 60 people that talked to customer support about this today. And here's the percentage of customer support time currently going to this issue. And here's like, you know, just kind of putting the whole opportunity assessment um, together for the team and just making it more consumable. Because I think so often, I don't know about you, but in the times when I've been on the incoming side of a stream of bug tickets, just the sheer work of sitting down and Sherlocking which ones go together and solving the jigsaw can sometimes prevent you from picking up those tickets and moving them across the board. So I was kind of solving like half the puzzle before I asked anybody to take a look. Yep. I love that. Um, Thinking a little bit more about kind of this associate product manager role. um, Would you say that, you know, for anyone who might be interested in getting into product and looking for those types of roles, like, you know, aside just from kind of like searching for that title, like what types of companies do you think should have associate product manager roles? Like, I, I think that, and and if you have any thoughts on maybe what prevents more companies from having that kind of position, but oh, for sure. it strikes me that maybe snag a job was at a certain scale that could support that. Like thinking about my experience working with very small early stage startups like I know like we're not in a position today to have that kind of role although hopefully at some point we can kind of support that and uh, I think it's incredible in terms of like giving people career paths and everything um but yeah what's what's your take on kind of that role who who is doing it right who should be doing having that position that doesn't Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think to your point about why more companies don't have this role, I think it's because people hire product managers when they have a problem to solve. Right. And the only companies that I see proactively putting product learning agendas in place and associate product management, um, tracks in place are those that are concerned about home growing their talent. And having a bench of people to fill roles and and solve problems when they come to them. And that does take a certain amount of capacity. It takes time away from your more senior people. Like there's a whole slew of things that have to happen for an associate product manager to actually get good experience. Um, Speaking a little bit to the size, I think it depends, right? Like my last product organization was pretty compact. We were about 25, including engineering. Um, and I, I, I looked around the org and very early saw somebody and was like, I think they might be a great product manager. Like, I think they've got the stuff. I came into the org and discovered they were like personally holding up like six manual processes that were keeping things running and like never (laughs) taking vacation and just like solving all the problems as they came up. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, um, that's it. And so, I mean, what we fundamentally did there, you know, I talked to them about it and just sort of, you know, talked to them a little bit about what product was, what it is as a career and kind of the opportunities that having that experience unlocks and talked about the rest of their career aspirations. Like, what were they thinking about? What were they interested in? And at the end of the day, I was like, look, I don't know that your day to day will change a ton because you're still going to be accountable for some of these things, but I think we could work together and get some of these processes to be more efficient, you know, get them into a place where you don't need a human in the loop all the time. That's a business resilience thing that I could talk about for ages. But, um, and at the end of the day, what we ended up doing was moving them into an associate product manager role. And they were still triaging bugs and doing customer support and all those things. Um, But on the other hand, they were coming to the product team meetings and we were taking the bug tickets And we were making sure that we were following a rigorous prioritization process and like they owned that process and they were making the tickets for the bug. So it was a very early primer and like, 
you know, baby steps into product management. Um, I definitely wasn't able to send them to Marty Kagan. And, you know, <laughs> there was a, a limited pool of product people to to hang out and become uh, in a mentorship relationship with. But to your point about just making opportunities for people, I am constantly blown away that I get to do this job. Yeah. <laughs> that somehow, like, I got I got lucky enough to be in it. And so I'm always looking for ways to, to pull people in because I don't know about you, but I just, I see product people everywhere. Like I see mm-hmm. someone solving a problem and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the DNA. Um, for those that might be listening to this and are maybe not in a like product adjacent role. So like thinking about what you were describing, this kind of exposure that you had in the social media role. I think to your point, customer support is a great one where like there is a very natural kind of overlap, but like, what if you're working for a part of the company that there's less of that or or less maybe opportunity to interact with someone from the product team where you just may not have that exposure any thoughts on how someone in a role like that might be able to what what they could do to maybe um, like start to get more of that exposure and or build certain skills that could help them be a good candidate for, for sure. And I think this applies move. not only to people who are in an organization that has product, but they're removed from it. Um, but also to people who are not in product at all. I was speaking recently um, to a class of people that were um, in product uh, master's work over at VCU. And there were people from, you know, Richmond public schools in the room. And I'm like, you guys are solving problems all day, scrappily with no resources. Like you can turn that into a case study. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a combination of having, again, that raw ingredient. If I want to solve the problem, I'm not going to like let resource constraints keep me from doing it. I'm not going to fall in love with the first thing I think of. I'm going to look for the right solutions or the best solutions instead of getting laser focused on, on whatever's the most interesting solution. And then you pair it with the language and the understanding and how you talk about it, right? Because I think you and I probably have met a lot of people that solved a lot of cool problems in a lot of ways, but they would not describe it in a way that speaks to the product management lexicon. And I yeah. think for the people that are really interested in pursuing this as a career, identifying where you're solving those problems and how you're doing it in a product way and being able to speak the language is really important. And like the master's programs that are popping up, like our local university does a master's in product innovation now. And I'm like, dang, I went to yeah. this school and you guys wouldn't have known what I was talking about if I asked for yeah. this as a major. Um And like, there's a whole class of people coming out of schools now that are classically trained in this. And that's awesome. But I also still have a major soft spot for the rogues that are like Mm -hmm. sneaking in, like we did around the edges. Um, And I think it's that combination of like problem solving and being able to speak to it that way. And I mean, one of the strongest product people I know, she was actually at Snag a Job when I was in um, the marketing department and she was an events planner. She planned all of our major corporate events. She like did all of our, you know, conventions and managed when we went to the National Restaurant Association to sell software. Mm -hmm. And she was amazing at that. She had a ton of energy, was outgoing, um, excellent organizational skills, was able to rally everybody, sometimes literally get them on the bus and get them where they were going. (laughs) And you see all of that in her product practice, right? And that was... That was, I think, part of what got her in, you know, I, I don't actually know the specifics of how she traversed going from events to product, but she did it inside right. Snag a Job. And I would, I would argue that you can see a direct line between the amazing events manager and the incredible product person she is today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's such a great point about kind of the lexicon of product. And I recall a few years back having a conversation with someone who similarly wasn't in a product role, was looking to kind of make that shift. And I had worked with them and I knew that they would be good at it. And my advice to them was like, you just need to learn how to talk like a product person talks. And um, it, it, 
like to be able to do that super fluently takes yeah. time, but I think to be able to do it well enough to go into an interview and just like frame your experience in a certain way, ask questions in a certain way, um, like think through a problem in a certain way. I don't think that's actually that hard to like build some of those fundamentals. Um, and I think it, that can be, um, a huge way, I think, to like level up going into an initial product interview where I think a lot of hiring managers, you know, if you haven't had the opportunity to be exposed to that person, you know, if they're not like an internal candidate that maybe you've seen some of these innate traits, um, if you're just kind of interviewing an external candidate that's trying to make that pivot, a lot of hiring managers are going to kind of screen out people that can't really talk through some of those fundamental product concepts or, or ways of thinking. And so um, I think it's a really great point that like, if, if you're the kind of person that feels like you have some of those innate abilities and, and characteristics that we're describing, and you're not sure kind of how to break through, I think building that lexicon of like, how do I talk like a product person is a really great way to think about it. Yeah. I usually advise people, I'm like, look at a problem that you're trying to solve today. It does not have to be a tech problem, right? That's the great thing about mm-hmm. product. We're everywhere solving everything. doesn't matter. And, you know, put together your personas, do a journey map, you know, put together a, a opportunity solutions tree and pick, you know, some things to run tests on and do an opportunity analysis and a risk analysis and like just practice these things. Um, to your point, it's like gaining fluency, right? And you're going to be so awkward at it the first time. And mm-hmm. the fifth time that you do it, you know, you're going to, you're going to be a lot better. Um, but for sure. And the other thing, and I think this makes product hard too, is every organization does product a little different. Right. And so the lexicon that, you know, Microsoft wants and the lexicon that the Amazon hiring manager are looking for are probably a little different. So I yeah. always try to advise people to at least do enough networking to have one conversation with somebody from product or engineering or design in the org that you're interested in. One, just like make sure you actually want to go over there. Right. Right. And two, what do they care about? Like, what's the framework? Like, what are the things they do? Are they running jobs to be done? Like, what what kind of words do you need to be able to be fluent in? Um, Great point. We, we can say it's the regional accent of your company, right. right? Like, you walk in there and you yeah. don't you don't you don't talk the same way they do, and they're going to kind of look at you and be like, hmm, I don't know. But if you can get right. in there and and talk, you know, the lingo that they're comfortable with. I think it it gives you an advantage. Yeah. I I totally agree. And I think the idea of like doing informational interviews um is huge. I um it makes me think a little bit about when I took this role at Procurated, um I hadn't been actively looking and um I I was really excited about the opportunity, but I had this like kind of feeling that I was like, oh, like, I I would have wanted to be much more intentional uh, about where I go next. And I felt like, oh, I I should have stopped and thought about like what my next role would look like and, and whatever. And so I kind of like forced myself to go and do some informational interviews with people at other types of companies really quickly to be like, okay, I just want to kind of have a point of comparison to make sure that this is what I want to jump into. Um, and I, I was entertaining the idea. I thought for a minute I wanted to work for like a digital agency. Um, cause I worked with some, um, shout out to the team at Vigit who I've worked with at a couple organizations and they're super talented and they do great work. And I've just always thought like, that would be such a cool environment to work in. And, um, you know, I would probably learn so much from the people there. Um, and I, I did an informational interview with somebody just to kind of explore that path a little bit and ultimately concluded that I didn't think that that environment would necessarily be, uh, the right fit for me. Um, and it can certainly be a very intense type of product role. Um, but I, yeah, I'm yeah. a, 
massive advocate of informational interviews in like every aspect of life. Um, if it weren't for an informational interview series, I wouldn't have known I didn't want to be an animator. Right. Like I was like, Oh, I want to work at Pixar. I want to work for Blizzard. And then I talked to a couple of people that are like, no, you work incredibly long hours. And unless you're in a major gaming studio, you get laid off at the end of the project because they don't have funding lined up for the next one. And then you have to move wherever the next job is. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Uh, this, this sounds, (laughs) and you know, like, even I was in a um, a coaching group uh, a little while ago. Shout out to my swell people, and um, and we had a, a member who was talking about like just not being sure about whether she wanted to move to pursue an opportunity or whether she wanted to stay where she was and like pursue a promotion or whether she wanted to do what or what. And we were like, "What do you want your life to look like in like 10, 15, 20 years? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, what do you imagine for yourself?" And she actually had a very clear end state she was going for, and I'm like. Well, one, I think that clarifies some of the things you're currently stressed about. Like, I wouldn't worry about scenario A because it has nothing to do with the future state you think you want. I would put yourself on the path and then I would go find some people that are living that life that you want for yourself in 20 years and yeah. make sure that the things that they have are the things you actually want, right? Because you would hate to do all that work for 20 years. It's a very product mindset. Like when you were talking right. about doing informational interviews because you were like, right. oh, it's just so great, but I don't want to just jump on the first thing. It's very much yeah. don't get shiny object syndrome, right? Exactly. It's like, I love that your instinct when presented with this amazing thing was also like, I'm going to look around. I'm going to make yeah. sure because you didn't want to make like a binary decision and that's amazing. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I think, you know, we're talking about this product lexicon and a, a way of thinking like a product person. And I think once you start doing it, you kind of can't stop or, or if you, you always have kind of thought that way, but it's something we talk a lot about um, within Procurated, like how can we approach every problem, problem the same way we approach product problems, right? And like apply product thinking to lots of different things, like how like company culture or whatever, right? Things that maybe are not immediately where you would think to apply that. Um, I once took a team's uh, retro feedback for a year and we were struggling. We'd been pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, It was a great team, but they'd been given too many different types of work. And so we'd had to split people up Mm. into like little miniature teams inside the team. And so like the culture in the team was really fragmented and like no fault of anybody's. It was just how we were surviving the workload. And I took the retro feedback from the year. I sent, I put it into optimal sort. I sent it out to the team and I was like, if you have time, if you're interested, I want you to do a card sort. And I had them like affinity map the cards together into themed groups and then name them if they wanted, like do a classic digital card sort. And then used that to create the bones of an opportunity solution tree and held like a retro roundup where, sorry, this is my very small Great Dane. Um, uh, basically said okay here's the things that are going well here's the things that aren't going well here's the themes like what do we actually want to pursue and we got down to like branches of the tree where we wanted to change outcomes and we started identifying things we'd even tried throughout the year we were like okay this was an experiment we didn't talk about it this way but this was the thing we tried to fix a thing do we like how it went or not like do we consider this a pass or fail and like yeah it's great to use like product tools all over the place. I can tell how much my, my friends and loved ones uh, like me at any given moment because <laughs> when I'm in a good place with them, they think it's amazing and not otherwise they're like, why is business Amy at Thanksgiving? You know, yeah. like, <laughs> business Amy is everywhere. Right. <laughs> business Amy wasn't invited to this conversation, but <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, I want to just touch kind of quickly as we move to to wrap up the episode, um, you know, I think we've talked a lot about how you got into product and I think that's an incredible experience. You've also moved up and had incredible success, um, in more senior roles. Um, is there anything you want to share about kind of that process? If, if there's anyone listening, that's maybe at, at a more advanced stage in their career and is not looking at how to get into product, but maybe instead how to to continue to move up into more senior roles. Um, just any thoughts from your experience that you think would be helpful for someone in that kind of position? Absolutely. Um, 
I think a big one, and this is kind of just life advice, is self-awareness, right? Like understand your strengths, understand where you have opportunities, and sort of assess, right? Like, is that an area where you need to build competency, where you need to build strength? Or is that an area where you can actually succeed by over-indexing in another spot, right? Like, yes. I personally not the strongest analytics person, right? If you give me a math problem and you need me to answer it right now on the call, it will be an absolute disaster. You'll really see that BFA shine. Um, <laughs> but in a lot of organizations, I'm either afforded like an Excel spreadsheet with which to do my calculations or partnered with an analyst. And so I've really leaned in to like the discovery side, the storytelling side, the empathy side as like my area. But there are some incredible people on like the business analytics side of product that like, you know, if we were both passionate about something, we could talk each other under a table on completely different terms and like, you yeah. know, to tie the leader who was tie breaking, um, you know, and there's that same deal on the tech PM side, right? Like technical product management is a whole nother thing. So like really understanding what gives you energy and like where you're going to bring your special like verve to the to the role and investing there and growing yourself and the other thing and this is something I think I carry from my time in marketing I had an incredible leader in the marketing organization at snag a job it was Mike Ward was a great guy led the team with empathy but the other thing he was really good at was always making sure the rest of the organization knew what the Marcom team was doing that was so great and why it mattered to the rest of the org and yeah. so there is a, a, a piece of our work that is making sure that our team's value is understood. You need to also be able to do that for yourself, right? Like, yeah. and oftentimes, if you're making sure the organization understands the value of your team, they will see that as a reflection upon you. But doing great work in a vacuum in an organization that's happy to just like say, cool, thanks for doing the great work, keep doing great work it helps to have a little bit of hype man, right? Helps to have a little bit of theater kit in you and be able to write like a really good internal press release or be able to do a really great shout out at the team meeting. Um, Because sometimes I see people doing amazing work, but they don't elevate it to the rest of the org in a way that gets them the next opportunity. And I think those things are really important. And then finally, like finding your advocates, finding your mentors, turn all of your great discovery abilities on the leaders in your org and the product people that are above you in an organization or at other orgs and understand what they think it would take for you to leave that gap, right? Like what are the competencies Mm -hmm. you need to build? Um, CarMax does a really good job of actually putting people through a structured program for their associate product managers and Mm -hmm. also for their leadership product roles. Like when you move from from competency to competency and from level to level, they do a really good job um, giving you the opportunity to invest there. So there's companies that do that, but they are, I would say, less than, than the norm. I'd say most of the time you're gonna be you're gonna be doing it on your own. And so making sure again, you use those product skills on your own career and think mm-hmm. about what you need to to do to make the next steps. Cause it's gonna be different for everybody, but the the tools you use to figure out your pathway are kind of gonna be the same. Yeah. I totally agree. And I, I think in some ways it kind of comes back a little bit to where we started, like this. I liked what you said about really getting smart about how you communicate and um, share the great work that you, your team are doing. Um, And I do think that's a really important part of most product roles and, and using that same lens to think about how you apply that in your career. It, it, but also balancing, you know, it's not like, shameless self-promotion, right? In the same way that you were talking about, um, there's a nuance to you weren't just bombarding the product team, you know, when you were the social media manager with like all of these, you know, you weren't annoying the crap out of them. Um, I don't think so, but I actually know one of the people that was on that email distro and I'll ask him just to see, like, hey, how bad was it? Um, yeah, no, for sure. And I think, I think you can always put this in customer parlance, right? Like if you wouldn't mm-hmm. send an update to a customer about it because it's not valuable enough, like, and it might cause them to un- unsubscribe from your email list, why would you tell right. anyone in the company about it? Right? right. Like always put yourself in that person's shoes and ask, do they care about this news? And if they don't care about the news, is it because it genuinely doesn't matter or because they don't understand why they should? In which case, like, 
figure out how to make that connection spark for them. And if it doesn't matter to them and you just wanted them to know, then like leave them alone and they'll listen harder next time. Yeah. And, you know, I think at the core of that is empathy, which in my mind is like the number one trait that you must have if you're going to work in product, right? The ability to think about like, what does this person want? What do they care about? Not just what do I want to tell them? I I definitely think I can see people that do not have the, the empathy chops making their way to a certain level in product. But most of the time, at least in an organization where you really want to spend time, they, they hit a ceiling at some point where, you know, whether that's before they're managing people or something and they just sort of hit that empathy wall and they either have to like learn the empathy skill or kind of just stay where they're at. Yep. Yep. I think you're right. Um, all right. So to wrap up our conversation, I have a, a short list of my rapid fire questions. So I'm just going to. Uh, fire these at you and, and we'll turn through it quickly, but okay. So um, do you think that a close friend or family member could accurately describe what you do? Um, it varies. And I know this specifically because every Thanksgiving I ask <laughs> everyone at the table to describe what they think my job is. And the person who gets it closest uh, gets the first slice of pie. Nice. <laughs> yes. Last year, my uh, partner did a pretty good job. They got real close. <laughs> they got first pick yeah. of the pies. <laughs> yeah. My parents have uh, no idea. They think I make the internet. My dad tried to give me a bug report for Google once. And I was like, let me talk to you about what happens when you submit this bug. I can't yeah. control it. But let me tell you what it's, what's about to happen. Yeah. No, my, my parents have no idea. And, and honestly, I think last time the conversation came up, uh, one of them thought that I still worked at Zometry. And I was like, I haven't worked there in like almost five years, guys. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. What is one product or tech, like word or phrase, maybe something from our aforementioned lexicon uh, that you wish you never had to hear again? If I hear us talk about touching customers again, <laughs> I'm going to just <laughs> climb under my desk and hide there until the next ice age because it's creepy and it's weird. And I don't know who started it, but we need to all get together and stop it. Yes. Nobody should be touching anybody if they're not nope. expecting it. Yes. I don't care what part of the journey they're in. World, you know, so <laughs> it should be easier now than ever. Um, yeah, plus one to that. Um, how often, uh, maybe think of, in recent history, most recent role, uh, how often do you actually talk to your customers or users? Mm. Most recently, um, I would go unfortunate, long, desert-like spans of time not talking to anyone. And then I would kind of go on a discovery binge, right? I would clear Mm -hmm. my calendar for two weeks and I would just look back to back to back to back to back to back to back. Um, I typically like to shoot for like five customers a week, right? That's going to give you a nice diversity of opinions. Um, You've got more than one persona. You might need to think about how you split that up. But like, I think that's a great way to keep yourself from getting too pinned into a single customer story. Like our empathy is a superpower, but it is also dangerous because we can get hyper-focused on fixing it for a single person. And then we build something that is really great for that guy over there, but doesn't work for like the rest of the users. So um yeah, it really depends. I'm all over the place. My best weeks, I talk to a lot of customers. Yeah, I I find the same thing. I, it, I think it's very common to kind of have these like ebbs and, and flows with these customer conversations. But like, I think the ideal everyone strives for is like, how do we make that a more consistent part of our process? So, um, all right. What book or person has been most influential in your career? Ooh. I'm going to say um, one of the leaders that I had in my product time at Snagajob, um, her name is Megan Overton. She is uh, fantastic. She actually just changed. She was at Capital One for a long time, and she has now um, moved into a startup role. But the thing that she did was she was always incredibly transparent with her team. Like, I always felt like I could trust her. Um, 
like even when the news wasn't what I wanted it to be or the feedback was challenging, I always knew that like it was coming from a place of genuinely wanting me to do well and me to do better. Yeah. Um, and then finally, like she really advocated for my team to have the breathing room and the space to solve problems rather than to chase specific outcomes that leadership was pushing. And it resulted in some of the most absolutely magical practice perfect years of my product career so far. Um, And I have also seen not just for me, but for other people, she has created this incredible nest of product managers. um, And you just know if you're talking to somebody that's worked under her, that you're about to have a great conversation. So that's amazing. Very cool to hear about people that are doing so much good for the, the product community in that way. All right. Last question. When you were a kid, what was your dream job? Mm. Obviously, you didn't think you were going to be working in, in nobody, product. Nobody knew what product management was. So uh, what did you think kid. you'd be doing? <laughs> I was very or specific. Hope. I was very specific, and I had three jobs. I was going to be Batman, going to be mm-hmm. Indiana Jones, and I was going to be Peter Pan. <laughs> Just like rotating <laughs> in different days of the week? Like, I really hadn't thought it through. I mean, particularly Batman and Peter Pan, they're going to have some hours overlap there, right? Like, right. they're both nocturnal. Like Indiana mm-hmm. Jones can get some stuff done during the day, but I don't know. I don't know. Young Amy <laughs> was very aspirational. Clearly it liked a costume. <laughs> it sounds like you wanted to help people, which, you know, that, that ties in, I think. So <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> and I think you could probably still wear a costume to work if you want. Oh, for sure. Know? Oh, I've dressed up as Indiana Jones for multiple holidays yeah. uh, for Halloween. <laughs> Like, it's kind of my classic. Like, if I don't, if I'm not part of a group, I'm going to show up as a disturbingly accurate Indiana Jones, and that's just my call sign. <laughs> Love that for you. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, we'll wrap up there. Thank you so much, Amy. This has been a really fun conversation. I know I learned a lot, um, a lot of really good kind of reminders and great perspectives. So, thank you. Thank you. Always great chatting with you. And uh, yeah, thanks for being on the show. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the invite. It was a great conversation and uh, grateful for the opportunity. Calling all startup technologists. Have you ever dreamed of hosting your own podcast, but don't know where to start? Well, here's your chance to shine. We're thrilled to introduce Beyond the Program, our exclusive mini-series, and we want you to be a part of it. As tech leaders and mentors, you'll get the exclusive opportunity to become a guest host right here on the Pair Program podcast. Share your expertise, insights, and stories with our audience of startup-focused technologists. Excited? We knew you would be. To be considered, head over to myhatchpad.com backslash contribute, fill out a brief form, and submit it our way. Let's co-create something amazing together. Don't miss this chance to elevate your voice and expand your personal brand. Visit myhatchpad.com backslash contribute.